Write that, write that down for me, Satan. Write that down for me, Satan. everyone welcome back to write that down i am one of your hosts justin nipper i work over at fight game media and f4w online wrestlingobserver.com and i'm back with mr fumi saito japan's leading pro wrestling author historian and broadcast journalist all right so today we can show you part two uh today we went over choshu's career from around 1984 uh during the the jump period when he and his faction Ishingun jumped from New Japan to All Japan and we talked about Japan Pro Wrestling we also spoke about Choshu's match with Jumbo Suda, All Japan 60 minute draw um, we talked about 1989 when Choshu moved into that booker manager position behind the scenes and we also talked about his creative genius behind the G1 round robin tournament that was his baby that was his creation oh also we almost forgot but we didn't we talked about the Akira Maeda incident in 1987 very important all right if you have not already done so please uh, subscribe to the fight game media network on Spotify or Apple or wherever you are listening to your podcasts all right let's get into Ricky Choshu part two Pro Wrestling in September of 1984, you had people like Shinichi Nakano, the Eigen Haruka, the Masanobu Chris, the other veterans, you know, they were in the mid-card in New Japan, they joined, and all of a sudden you have 15 guys leaving New Japan. At the time, 1984, if you have, if you remember, that, that was the year the original UWF started. Ah, that's right. That's yeah, funny. and then Akira, uh, Akira Maeda, Yoshiaki Fujiwara, Nobuhiko Takada, that uh, little bit uh, that, uh, initially, Russia Kimura, you know, the big hero, mm-hmm. right? That uh, before he ended up joining All Japan, the, the little bit, you know, Russia Kimura and Go Ryuma, uh, people like Grand Hamada, was part of original UWF too. Wow, how many people did they lose that year? Hmm. You know, that New Japan, they lost about 30, 30 wrestlers. That was also, and I'm talking about 1984, that was also the year that the later on Three Musketeer, Keiji Muto, Masachono, and, and Shinya Hashimoto, they all came to New Japan Dojo. Very interesting year, huh? Mm, very, very. Uh, at least in Japan. And Liger was landscape. first year rookie. Yeah. Uh, the Liga, as, as it was in Keiichi Yamada, he was first-year rookie, along with people like uh, Sano, uh, Hata, and uh, yeah. Oh, the 15-year-old Masakatsu Funaki was at the dojo, too. Mm. And the uh, following year, uh, Asai, uh, uh, Yoshihiro Ultimate Asai. Dragon. Ultimate Dragon couldn't debut with New Japan because they consider him too short, right? But... Uh, uh, 86, 85, 86, he was practicing at Dojo and living in Dojo. Very interesting era. But uh, when I, I asked this uh, uh, Keiji Muto into the question, it's like, like, were companies, you know, like a big earthquake hit, right? Like 
you know, were they shaken up? Like are you losing, you know, all the star wrestlers, got 20, 30 wrestlers all together. And Keiji uh, Muto's answer back, 35 years ago was very interesting. I asked him personally that the, what were they thinking, right? It's like he said, Muto said, you know, well, then we, we'll be on TV right away. Great. Mm. <laughs> that's how wrestlers think. You know, the company's going to last. Right? That's how, would, you know, like losing UWF 10 guys, right? Original UWF, they left. And Ricky Choshu and his group, 15 guys left. And you have Skelton. You know, the back to Inoki, Sakaguchi, Fujinami, Kengo, Kimura, and George Takano Cobra came back from Calgary. Yeah, that that's a little odd. That uh, Junji Hirata came back from uh, Calgary and become super strong machine, and that's a good. Uh, and then and then Hiro, Hiro Saito came back from Calgary too, and that but that's still three or four new guys, right? Mm-hmm. But they made those guys heal to challenge company the same. Ishingun Rikichoshi method. But uh, interesting, the young lion Hashimoto Muto Chono all thought, oh, great, we'll be on TV right away. Mm. <laughs> interesting, interesting way yeah. to look at it, huh? Very. Um, yeah. Before Choshu moved back to New Japan in 87. New Japan, right. Yeah. What, before, yeah, before we move on from that, I, I know there were a couple, there are a handful of important matches that Choshu had, like really quite important single, matches. Single, one and only single single match against Jumbo Tsura. Mm-hmm. 85 at the Osaka Joe Castle Hall. Uh, Ricky Choshu, Jumbo Tsura. They only met once on, on a single match occasion, just once. 60-minute Broadway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How was that viewed? Was that viewed as kind of like a dream match at the time? Oh, yeah, very much dream match, but uh, reading-oriented, meaning like a, the kind of wrestling fan that reads all the wrestling magazine every week, back-to-back, mm-hmm. that they thought, they predicted 60-minute draw. How, how else can you get out of this, right? Uh, double count-out? Or double count-out, such a letdown, right? right? Or double DQ? Very much letdown. There were a lot of and, those at around the time in all Japan. Still, too. yeah, because Giant Baba being very conser- conservative booker, producer, right? Um, you don't want to harm your superstar or uh, you don't want to tell Jumbo to lose it. You don't, you can't, you don't want to tell Ricky Choshu to lose it. And actually Ricky Choshu Tenru single match prog- you know, program clicked much better because they did it so many times and all the matches were good and styles were similar, you know, mm. and it looked like Jumbo could manhandle Ricky Choshu at the time. He was and a so lot much taller bigger, and, taller, yeah. And heavier and great wrestler, you know. And then uh, Choshu later on admitted that uh, he had a complex because uh, personally he believed Jumbo was so much more talented than he himself, you know. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, because wrestlers sometimes arrogant, but sometimes very humble as an athlete. Because when you get in the ring or you watch what they do, you could tell this, you know, this person's talented than, you know, more talented than I am, right? And, and they're uh, both Olympians, so they have high standards of each of themselves and of each other. Yeah, and then they respected each other, and uh, but all things considered, they ended up having half-ass sixty-minute Broadway. 
But if you watch this match, you know, 37 years later, it's a good match, you know. But at the time, people expected a little bit different, you know, like Ricky Choshu clothesline, you know, Jumbo three or four times and Jumbo's big body takes big bump or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it or, wasn't a, as dramatic or action-packed. Or as... spectacular or, yeah, because that was more Jumbo Trudeau-style match. He was so used to doing 60-minute Broadway match, which he had done against Dory Funk, mm. Harley Race, the Jack Briscoe, Billy Robinson. Oh, wow, he'd already done that 60-minute match many times. And I don't believe Ricky Choshu had 60-minute Broadway experience until up until that point, which he never did again, you know? Yeah, and Choshu I mean, he's was, not the kind of 60-minute wrestler. No, he's an explosive wrestler who uh, he has a couple big moments at that, or, or a couple moments in a tag match. or uh, the, but, but the matches themselves, the big ones, at least for him, I, I don't think the Tenru and uh, Choshu match at the Tokyo Dome was very long. It was like barely 10 minutes. Uh, 92, yeah, 93. but uh, you felt like you watched, you know, classic. Very, yeah, you know? because yeah, every, so kind of everything he did... Uh, <laughs> Not just had a meaning, but he went 110% behind. And, and, and high impact, too. Believable. Yeah. And whereas Jumbo 2 is more, you know, Dory Funk, Hardy Race School of Wrestling. NWA very, very slowly, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then saved the big spot until the, in the last 10 minutes of the match or something. Very old-fashioned. So they... It, it clicked in different way because it showed the difference. You know, if you have educated eye and go back and watch this, you know, match from 1985, I think we both enjoyed that match much better than we, we, we you know, we, I did then. Yeah. Because mm. I'm then also 37 years older now that I have different eyes for wrestling, you know. So that there's a videotape for, of it. So it's something that you can study. But uh, it, I'm not sure if they really enjoyed the moment, you know, that much. Something, well, it's wrestling, so none of these guys are losing, right? No way. And that was kind of, in, not a problem, but it was definitely a pattern in the mid-80s in all Japan. Yeah, because Jumbo Suta wasn't about to lose, and Ricky Choshu, the big, huge superstar then, there was momentum. He wasn't going to lose. And uh, yeah, that's probably why they only did it once, you know? Mm. And tag team situations, at the time, Jumbo and Tenru was still tag team, Tenru in babyface side. And just about every night of the, on, the, on the tour, Jumbo, uh, Tenru, and maybe third person, six-man tag team situation, and, and Ricky Choshu and either... He, 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 Either Yatsu or Kobayashi or Hamaguchi. somebody like Teranishi or Hamaguchi. Yeah, and then you, the Ricky Choshu's trio working against, you know, against, you know, all Japan trio like pretty much every night. So the, actually, Jumbo and Ricky Choshu were in, in the same ring just about every night, but they only had maybe two spots against each other each right. night. Right. Yeah, yeah. But all through the year. But it was an interesting test because some people were critical about 19, in the early 80 version of Ricky Choshu that he is not as versatile, meaning that the, he can have great single match against people like Fujinami and Inoki and uh, very limited among Americans, right? But uh, 
when he worked against people like Dory Funk, Terry Funk, or Harley Race, or of all people, like, can you imagine having a match against people like Dick Bakwenko? You know, well, it was tag team situations. But, uh, well, this Ric Flair against Ricky Choshu NWA World title match happened, you know. They, they had the picture-perfect Scorpion Deathlock that uh, Ricky Choshu put on Ric Flair. Picture-perfect, great. But uh, Ricky Choshu at the time didn't think it was a very good match, you know. Mm. And uh, mm. because he ended up doing Ric Flair match. Right, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also he admitted that, that, that he started out with Aoyama, they say. Aoyama is, meant New Japan, uh, meaning that uh, when he was with New Japan, New Japan office were in Shibuya, Aoyama area. So Ricky Choshi used to call the office uh, Aoyama. You know, anyhow, that uh, so I grew up in Aoyama, so uh, I don't know how just like uh, how big, big, big of a deal NWA World Title match was, and I didn't know about it, something like that. So, uh, NWA is always the concept that the old Japan really polished and cherished that it's the biggest, you know, biggest world title and the closest thing to. Undisputed, undisputed world heavyweight championship, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas New Japan and Antonio Inoki created IWGP to conquer that, right? Mm-hmm. That the whole philosophy was there, and Ricky Choshu was in the middle of it. You know, he didn't. He had to say something like, "Yeah, I didn't know how great NWA World Title was," or something like that. But he was in, and you know, that the old Japan cluster for the next two years, and. Uh, you, you know, if when you're in in all Japan situation, yes, you'll have that. Uh, you you'll meet all the all Japan wrestlers. You know, not just Jumbo and Tenru, but uh, the Misawa Tiger Mask Misawa at the time. Well, all the you know like American you know stars that are actually taller and heavier than Ricky Joshi himself. You know what I'm saying? Did he ever have a singles match with Bruiser Brody? Around this time, uh, I, I was gonna get to it. Ah, okay. They own, yeah, not not a single match situation, but in it, actually the year Ricky Choshu and his guys came and started working full time with All Japan, eighty five. Okay, that was the year Bruiser Brody himself, all by himself, switched side to New Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and only once. In the grand opening of this Ryogoku Sumo Hall, that the main event was Road Warriors against uh, Jumbo and Tenru, international tag team title. The grand opening of Sumo Hall. And Bruiser Brody was openly vocal about not being the main event on such a epic date that the new opening of new arena is a brand new small hall you know small arena small palace i, sh- I should say that uh, bruiser brody was not in the main event he was not happy right and the tag team ricky choshu and i cannot remember that was, i believe it was yoshiaki yatsu and the, the the opponent was bruiser brody and killer tim brooks mm. okay so it's a tag team situation <laughs> that was like also very interesting to to see Bruiser Brody not letting Ricky Choshu do his stuff on not one bit, you know. He was much bigger. And, yeah, and then Big Boot, you know, he he gave Big Boot to to Ricky Choshu's face. 
match itself was, I believe, Ricky Choshu pinned Killer Brooks with 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 you know, your, your clothesline, or Ricky Choshu finished Killer Brooks, you know, with his scorpion. I just like. It, the, the finish, the whole sequence slipping away, I cannot remember, you know, but all I remember was that Bruiser Brody didn't do, you know, let Ricky Choshi do a thing. And that's how I remember, you know, how most people remember. And Bruiser Brody made sure that that was the last night he worked all Japan. Then he walked out. Then Inoki against Bruiser Brody program starts in New Japan side. And pretty much with the skeleton, you know, that the roster, Bruiser Brody, in a lot of ways, saved New Japan that year. Isn't that interesting? It was a busy yeah, year. It was a wild year. Yeah, yeah, and then just within 1985, Antonio Inoki and Bruiser Brody had a six single matches, all big, super, you know, arena-type matches. Not one clear finish. <laughs> it's so 1985, huh? Sure, yeah. Yeah, because it's a business happens and you have you know every time Inoki and Bruiser Brody had a single match uh you always have more than 10 15,000 people you know big business right mm. and you would think Inoki would beat everybody but uh, I guess with this single match program against Bruiser Brody either Inoki get DQ'd or Bruiser Brody get DQ'd and one time there was double count out and there was no contest and you know what I'm saying not even the count outside the ring not one finish in these six single matches but they did it but after Bruiser Brody left it was the program Stan Hansen against Ricky Choshu in Old Japan ring interesting huh mm. is that where he got the lariat so when we started using the lariat with Stan Hansen? No, 82. 82 was New oh, 82, Japan. that's right. We talk, okay. Yeah, we talked about it because Riki Choshu was basically a mid-card Japanese-sized wrestler who took Western lariat clothesline from that's Stan right. Hansen the most. <laughs> you know, So just at the end of 81, Stan Hansen leaves and joins All Japan, right? So that was just as soon as Stan Hansen left New Japan, it was Ricky Choshu's finish. Ricky Lariat. Ricky Lariat, that's right. Was born. Interesting, huh? Because oh, they take care of people's finish. You know, if it was Western Lariat, you know, left hand, uh, left arm, I should say, uh, clothesline of Stan Hansen, that, that nobody messed with it, mm. you know. Then now that the Stan Hansen left and joined the other side, which is all Japan, that it became Ricky Choshu's signature move. Well, they took care of that tradition, and uh, yeah, now it's uh, the superstar Ricky Choshu switch side and come to all Japan and his faction and uh, superstar Ricky Choshu's clothesline against American superstar Stan Hansen's Western Lariat. You know the Lariat against the Lariat. In 86, following year, um, Ricky Choshi beats Stan Hansen to become PWF heavyweight champion. <clears throat> Pacific Wrestling Federation, you know, now the part of that uh, triple crown. <clears throat> Excuse me. But he, but the, he was criticized a little bit by, you know, like more in fans that uh, there were three single title match, the title, single title championship, right? International heavyweight title, you know, uh, of Jumbo Tsura. 
UN United National Heavyweight Title uh, held by Tenru Genichiro Tenru, then and the Pacific Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Title held by Ricky Choshu. Three single championship, uh, you know, kept kept by three different superstars. Who is the best? And it's like. That's so Giant Baba's, you know, school, you know, Giant Baba booking that uh, giving each of three belts to three different top guys. But that's like ended up, you know, not having a real true top guy. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. Yeah. When you make a guy in the, top, in the promotion, at one top single superstar like Roman Reigns is right now, that you don't give other guys, you know, belts, you know. And it was almost confusing that, uh, they, yeah, by each having three, you know, three different singles championship that made made them equal, but uh, equal doesn't work in wrestling, does it? Well, especially okay. around that time, a lot of these guys were hitting their peak points in their careers. There were a lot of big stars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But same year, yes, in 86, uh, Riki Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu finally beat Jumbo and Tenru to become international tag team champion. Yeah. He, which he held that tag team title until uh, Riki Choshu left, uh, left All Japan again to rejoin uh, New Japan mm-hmm. in w- spring of Spring, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this is when... Masa Saito joined him in New Japan, right? Uh, actually, in 86, uh, until part, in the spring of 87, he was in jail mm-hmm. in America, in Wisconsin. When did he end up back with New Japan? 87, 87. It, yeah. uh, after spring? Yeah. Uh, actually, he looked like part of... Ricky Choshu's group, right? Right. But yeah. actually, Masa Saito was the only wrestlers, I mean, genuinely freelancer with uh, under no contract. He just came back from AWA. Mm. Mm, that's right. You know, like the dying days of AWA. He got out of jail. He wanted to brush up a little bit in the work dates with all Japan, but he felt like he wanted to come back. And also, that was the year Anthony Inoki started having this Inoki live at the Osaka Joe Hall, that the Sumo Palace, that the you know celebrating Inoki's 30 years in business type of deal. And Inoki's special opponent was Masa Saito. That year alone, 87. That year alone, including the jungle no people match, Inoki and Masa Saito had four important single matches, all big house. Mm. And also, they needed Masa Saito because technically, Riki Choshu, the Kuniaki Kobayashi, the uh, other, you know, Riki Choshu's group could not legally work New Japan until October of 87. Mm-hmm. They were still doing, uh, you know, like a right outside the guardrail with street clothes and teasing, you know, like making a run in. And that was as much as they could. If they put on the wrestling gear and get on the ring, you'll be sued. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they did what they could do. And yes, uh, rookie coming, you know, uh, rookie Hiroshi Hase uh, and Masa Saito. They're, those two were not under contract. Therefore, they could start working with New Japan right away. Therefore, 
Master Saito against Inoki, uh, the main event of like IWGP tournament that year. Uh, rookie Hiroshi Hase seconding it, you know, and Ricky Choshu and his guys in street rows sitting right outside the, you know, the, the barricade. Hmm. Interesting picture, huh? Kind of reminds me of the, you know, like an NWO or. Right. Very similar. Very similar. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, it's an interesting storyline and it's an angle, but the, technically you could legally get sued by very smart lawyers, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And usually not much of you know, wrestling people, but the Channel 4, you know, All Japan Pro Wrestling, Channel 4 is very angry that uh, the way Riki Choshi walked out on, on contract. Yeah. How many more years or months were on it? Uh, I think like uh, if they don't terminate the contracts, that'll automatically extend or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. It basically Ricky Choshu and his seven other guys walked out on it. Yeah. Hmm. And expecting that somebody will take care of it. <laughs> Inoki will take care of it, right? Yeah. Uh, so 87... Some of the group is back with Choshu, but mostly it's it, Choshu is. Uh, how was he perceived? Was he was he more of a heel? Still Ishing Ishingun, because he will not be part of Inoki and Fujinami establishment. You know, he you know his thing. You know, Ricky Choshu always had his guys with him, and he always work against the company establishment. He will be challenging Fujinami again. Will be challenging Inoki again, right? And uh, yeah, so that was the, the, the this basic image of Ricky Choshu always on his own, you know. And uh, it will be another year or two until Ricky Choshu actually shake hands with Inoki in that ring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, but the, this 85, 85, 86 uh, two year period was you know pretty important that the. Uh, you know, Ricky Choshu and his guys actually switched side and worked all Japan. So they, you know, Ricky Choshu and his guys became one of the very few groups that worked both groups under Inoki's, you know, watch, under vision, under Giant Baba's, you know, supervision. Like a completely different philosophy in, pro, you know, the way you run wrestling company, you know, wrestling business or wrestling shows or or the the dressing room itself yeah yeah no one what was, was the, uh, no one had that experience at the time it was very unique at the time right to them. yeah yeah probably only person who worked both sides was uman uh, like i said umanosuke weather and probably hiro matsuda that's it yeah mm. yeah but they are special you know though umanosuke weather and hiro matsuda were considered japanese wrestler but they lived in america you know so it was a little bit different. And uh, yeah, not everybody came back. You know, the Yoshiaki Yatsu uh, choose to stay with Old Japan and became, you know, under contract Old Japan wrestler. Uh, Yoshiaki Yatsu, that the Killer Khan didn't come back. Uh, uh, Isamu Teranishi didn't come back. E Haruka Eigen, Shinichi Nakano, uh, quite a few stayed. But then Rookie, who started, you know, started with All Japan, I'm talking about Kensuke Sasaki, was Rookie then. But he 
yeah, came back to New Japan. Not that came coming back, but the, he debuted with with All Japan, and he was Japan Pro Wrestling wrestler. He joined New Japan with this this version of Ricky Choshu, Kensuke Sasaki and Hiroshi Hase. They those two are rookie then. Yeah, interesting, huh? Sasaki would become kind of like the protege. Yeah, much much bigger star than people thought. Yeah. And he would kind of dress like Choshu, had the same hair. Same stump. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And not tall, but real stocky, you know, like a... Like a More like know. Kenta Kobashi's build. Yeah, and then you, he, the way he lifts weights every day and uh, the way he practiced and work out eight hours a day every day. And yeah, because he was really, really dedicated and... Uh, you know, more like, see, he, he had a little bit of complex too because his rookie mate was a former Olympian, you know, that uh, golden rookie Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke's in college graduate and also taught in high school uh, for one year. And, and Kensuke Saki joined Ricky Choshu's group right out of high school. He was in judo, but never national level, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, uh, what he needed to do was just work very hard to get what he wants, you know? Yeah. He was always kind of circling around the Three Musketeers. Yeah, because they, they designed that the, the Three Musketeers, Muto, Hashimoto, Chono, were like they were designed to be the top guys, huh? Hmm. You know, and then... And uh, Kensuke himself, of course, you know, and knew he was going to get there. But, uh, yeah, took him a little longer. Yes. Yeah. Um, 87, 88, Choshu's back in New Japan. But this was also when Inoki was kind of wrapping up his... Slowing down. Yeah. And also the uh, rise of Big Van Vader era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. See, that... Uh, People talk about this, you know, Sumo Palace riot, December of 1987. You know, that was the night Big Van Vader debuted and beat Inoki in just two minutes or something. Actually, the lineup they uh, announced previously was final meeting of Inoki against Ricky Choshu, right? Hmm. And they were going to switch that to Ricky Chosh, and I mean, uh, Inoki against Big Van Vader. And people booed that thing, you know, that the beat Takeshi, you know, and the, that the TPG, Takeshi Progress Gundan, uh, the taking over New Japan and TBSR, you know, this big angle that the, they came up with. That was the time that the, the old Japan was switching that the world pro wrestling to give up Made Matenai, that the, the variety portion of pro wrestling program that people hated so much. And uh, they did this uh, pirate, which people hated so much. You know, they run in and you know destroy the match and, and run off, right? You know, if you remember the Billy Gasper, the, you know, that the parts unknown pirate from some Caribbean or something that the people didn't buy. And uh, that, that this pirate guy destroyed Inoki against Masa Saito match too. And uh, Big Van Vader was part of this, you know, that the new package deal that uh, they were going to create Monster, which they did. But uh, this December 87 version of Big Van Vader wasn't quite ready to 
you know, st- you know, to be on that, you know, on that spot. But uh, the booking is a booking. You know, this debuting Big Bang Vader beat Inoki was this avalanche power slam in two minutes. But uh, people are not happy, so they had to have Inoki against Ricky Choshu too in the same night. Inoki ended up working twice. You know what I'm saying? Mm. That's like uh, chaos, don't you think? It it scared. It was so bad. It scared Kitano away from pro wrestling forever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think so. Because pe- wrestling fans are crazy. <laughs> but that, that yeah, was but the, that was uh, yeah. unique, though. That was uh, if anybody's seen. Yeah, but I think the, what was bad about world, this, but... you know, Kita- Takeshi Kitano thing? He left the building without watching a match. Oh, so it was just his reaction to how the people yeah wrestling reacted. world, you know, because yeah. he felt that he was used. You know, but the day had Ricky Choshu Inoki single match that night, right? You know, like a couple minutes, a couple matches before Inoki Big Van Vader match. But what they gave people was six minute DQ match. Oh, that got people mad even more. You know, mm. yeah. It's, I mean, like Japanese wrestling fan will boo the match not because you you hate the heels, but they they boo you. When they don't like what they're watching, how's that? They they think it's bullshit. They think it's yeah, yeah. But the, that's how you know messed up or that the, the things were out of control that night or that period. You know that the, it was obvious that the Inoki was not in his prime anymore. But you have to keep in, in Anthony Inoki, the producer, the director, the owner of the company, the top guy that the, you feed everybody, right? Mm. But uh, they you know, had to start dealing with the reality that that night Inoki chose to do the complete job. You know, you gonna start this Big Van Vader guy. I'll show you how to do the job, right? That uh, Inoki so creative that they took this rather green Leon White and got himself beat in two minutes. The monster, the monster was born that night, right? Mm. Then 88 January tour on Big Van Vader was on every single tour, like working full time. Then about a, about working about a year, he became like the biggest, you know, the the best big big man worker of the era and of, of the era, I think. But uh, yeah, 88 pretty much was the last year Inoki worked full time. In 89, he ran for public office and won the election and became parliament yeah so he didn't have to retire but uh, he actually won uh, won the election national election and got about little less than one you know one million but uh like nine hundred ninety thousand vote and then he actually yeah was elected into uh upper house parliament big deal right Hmm. But uh, that was 1989, the beginning of 1989. The, the, the election was summer, but uh, he withdrew from wrestling schedule as of like a, uh, January, February of 89. That's when Inoki gave the booker job, the booker position, the exclusive, I mean, the, the executive producer, they call it, but the Kantoku. basic, yeah, uh, to Riki Choshu. You would think. You would think Inoki would give that position to Fujinami, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, here, yeah, that that was the hierarchy, right? Instead, Inoki chose 
Ricky Choshu over Fujinami, apparently, because he was jock and the locker room leader, and he was, I think Fujinami was a more artist and athlete and on his own, that he is not the right person to run the entire locker room with 45 guys. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Ricky Choshu was, I mean, whereas Ricky Choshu was the type of guy who lived in the fraternity house, you know? He's animal uh, house. I think he probably got a little more respect backstage just because of... Or he, he can yell at guys and make make them, you know, keep their mouth shut. <laughs> like you said, he's you said he was a, a scary dude. Just yeah, in general. Yeah, but just the energy he, he just walk around. He's not gonna hit you or yell at you or anything. But the the aura or the air that he generates that uh, you don't want to bother this scary guy. You know, the, the big jock. You know, and uh, he, the, I'm sure that was new to him that he never ran, but running. Dressing room is one thing, but giving finish. This is wrestling, right? Yeah. I mean, he was coming from the complete, like you said last week, he wasn't coming from a, a pro wrestling fan background. He he didn't care for it. He, he's from the, the sports side. Yeah, but the, he, yeah, but the, he became professional wrestler. For, sure. I mean, uh, I mean uh, 1989 version of Ricky Choshu already had 17-year experience in professional wrestling, seen it all, done it all, though, you know, and uh, and the summer of 1989, he came up with, with the, the, that later on became G1 Climax, but uh, the, he ran three consecutive nights at at the Korakuen Hall, you know, was was never done then, you know, that the three nights. Three consecutive nights at Korakuen Hall, but now they do. You know that today's New Japan run two or three consecutive like days. Four sometimes. Four. Sometimes, but uh, 1989, like running three nights, uh, consecutive nights at Korakuen. So you gotta, you know, gotta be doing something very special, you know, for people to come back three consecutive nights, right? Mm. But they did. He did that. Then that uh, nineteen eighty that became seven consecutive nights at the Korakuen. That was also Ricky Choshu's idea. Seven consecutive nights at Korakuen, though. You got to do something special, right? But uh, that was nineteen ninety. Then that became three consecutive nights at Sumo Palace, very f- in, a, in the first inaugural G One Climax, nineteen eighty then that became tradition. Every summer, G1 climax. Uh, His booking philosophy is pretty, you know, simple, like very athletic. No, not much storyline or betrayings or somebody backstabbing somebody or he had none of that. It was more about wrestling competition Mm. and clean finish. Remember like uh, start having all the clean finishes in New Japan around 1990? Yeah, it's funny because he had so many matches in his career where there were no clean finish. There was nothing. Because <laughs> the finish was given by someone else. Right. Then. Yeah, but he, he did uh, champion the sport, a uh, uh, realistic type of uh, approach, but also, um, like you said, he was kind of setting the calendar, too, for the company, which it was. I don't think it was as involved as it became in in the 90s when they were running Corquin three seven nights in a row 
Yeah, 89, 90. Mm. Then that became G1 Climax in 19, summer of 1991. Mm. And also, we need to point this out that at that point, Ricky Choshu was the only you know Amer uh, Japanese single wrestler who beat Inoki one, two, three in the middle of the ring for like a, three times. Fujinami mm -hmm. ne never beat Inoki, uh, you know, in single match situ situation. So people took Ricky Choshu was the guy who took over the company. Really, because mm -hmm. you have to do that in the ring. This is wrestling, you know, work and everything, but, but the, the, the winning and losing has to mean something, huh? Mm -hmm. I mean, it has to, though. I still believe that today, that the winning and losing, or putting somebody over or doing jobs, this is a different you know, term, different word for it, but uh, the result of the match should matter. Don't you think? Of course, uh, everything should have uh, uh, consequences if you're going to be watching it every week. Or oh, the meaning of it, yeah. yeah. And 1991 inaugural, the very first G1 climax that the that, uh, Ricky Choshu, then I mean, very creative booker, right? He lost every single tournament match that year. Interesting, huh? Uh, it's a very different style so than... Yeah, and then not selfish. And also he showed that to the audience, showed that to the locker room. This is how you do it. That he that the, the, the match was interesting between like a single match, you know, between Ricky Choshu and Bam Bam Bigelow. Mm. Bam Bam Bigelow was so happy <laughs> that night to do this did the, the diving headbutt off the top rope and the, the splash to a cartwheel to the whole nine yard and beat Ricky Choshu in the middle of the ring, one, two, three. And then he really showed the whole locker room, this is how it was going to be done from that point on. You know what? Therefore, yeah? It's, I'm, I'm coming, it's out of nowhere, but I just realized something. We skipped over a, a very important part of Choshu's career in 87 with Maeda. Ah! Oh, we, right. I think we that should, re like before very, we move very, on to the well, 90s, yeah, yes, right, right. we should rewind to 87. <laughs> because Forgot about when that. When we talk about Akira Maeda and his, you know, decorated career, yes, we always have to talk about it because it led to the, the, the reopening of second version of UWF. The November of 1987 at the Korakuen Hall, yes. Six-man tag team situation. Uh, Masasai, uh, Riki Choshu, Masa Saito, and Hiro Saito, okay? Uh, one team. And the other team was Akira Maeda, uh, Nobuhiko Takada, and Osamu Kido. Six-man tag situation. Uh, Riki Choshu putting Scorpion Deathlock on Kido, I believe, that uh, out of nowhere, Akira Maeda walks into the ring and kicked Riki Choshu's face from behind. Boom! And it made funny sound. I was there like, like, twenty year, you know, twenty years away, and uh, yeah, that was interesting. Not interesting, but like, uh, people thought it was an angle. It wasn't, you know. And uh, my then president Seiji Sakaguchi suspended uh, Maeda right away. Then a month later, he got re he actually got fired from New Japan. But Riki Choshu was the one telling that, no, uh, oh, no, don't let him go. I don't, only those two know what really happened that night. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, you know, later on, Razor Ramon, Scott Hall was watching that moment from the, the ramp too. 
Wow. Yeah, and then also that same year, 87, that uh, spring of 87, we rewind it, okay? <laughs> uh, IWGP was not a title yet. That after this uh, tournament final, uh, final was between Inoki and Masa Saito, okay? And Inoki naturally beats uh, Masa Saito. And they, they introduced new finish too. You know, you know Saito suplex, right? That the mm-hmm. big suplex backdrop. That he Inoki turns his body and avalanche him. People do that now a lot, but uh, that was the first night they introduced the finish. Masa Saito was going to give perfect uh, Saito suplex. In midair, Inoki turns his body and avalanched. Both take both wrestlers take big bump and covers one, two, three. Wow. That was very fresh finish. That uh, Now they do that a lot, but uh, uh, that was very interesting finish that Inoki beats uh, Masa Saito for the tournament final. And that night, IWGP becomes the championship belt becomes the title that to be defended, you know, then you think that was the finale that, uh, you know, the final moment of that night. No, Ricky Choshu walks in, you know, with microphone and say, challenging the establishment that the big, huge angle of new leader and now leader, those, the, all the fa- existing faction w- w- gotten broken up it's at the time there was like a four dressing room inoki and the company new japan dressing room right and there was a ricky choshu ricky the choshu gundan dressing room then uwf dressing room then american dressing four dressing there was but uh, just by doing one big angle that night the all the faction got destroyed, you know, that the new leader, the Riki Choshu, that the Fujinami joins, and Maeda joins, all the young wrestlers joins, and, and challenge the establishment. Now leader, that uh, Inoki and Sakaguchi, and Masa Saito joins that part too. And uh, that was a big, huge angle, like that the, all the existing faction and group no, long, no longer, and uh, now it's the younger guys, against older guys you know there was a very exciting you know angle that night and again young scott hall watched the whole thing and turned that into nwo a decade later that's very interesting isn't it though mm. oh because the scott hall was you know not we're not talking about scott hall that much today but the scott hall was a serious student of professional wrestling all the way and he witnessed that new leader, now leader angle. He witnessed that the shoot kick done by Akira Maeda on, 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 on Ricky Choshu's face that night. Scott Hall witnessed the whole thing and thought it was big angle. It wasn't. And uh, yeah, he was there like uh, Forrest Gump. That's what I'm talking about. Like uh, being there with Peter Sellers. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Right, 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 right. People thought it was like uh, when we talk about it, you know, people just go, just like uh, just like uh, Tom Hanks, you know, Forrest Gump in, mm-hmm. in uh, interesting moments of history, you know. But that's let's talk about that sometimes, you know, again. But uh, right, we could not skip this 1987 uh, spring uh, that uh, big angle right after the finale of IWGP tournament that the IWGP becomes the the, the heavyweight world 
championship that to be defended, then that shoot kick thing happened. And Maeda gets fired from the company. And following spring, that the UWF starts again. Then that's another subject for another day because you some of these serious UWF followers and fans believe that, that they were going to change professional wrestling into legitimate contest, the professional sport. You know, that that later on ended up becoming what you call what we call MMA today, you know, but another portion of history. But the Ricky Choshu stayed with his company and became Saul Booker after Inoki left, and it was completely Ricky Choshu era. Well, in, what's interesting is though, he still kept this rebel image of it, but actually, he was a guy who was running the dressing room. Isn't that interesting? And I, I'm I don't know if it played into how people perceived Choshu after it happened, but uh, listeners out there should need to realize that this kick it wasn't just a, a you know, frilly kick. It it broke his orbital bone. It, it broke his right, face. and his oh, and then Ricky Choshu's face for it next sw- two months sw- it was swollen up. Oh, it looked and, horrible. Uh, he. Uh, but the Ricky Choshu only two weeks, three weeks later, told people to not let Maeda go. Mm. You know, yeah. It's interesting too because uh, when we bring up Maeda and Choshu, they were both very popular at the time, but they really were on different paths. They were like on the opposite sides of the road when it came oh, to yeah. pro oh, wrestling. Yeah. And uh, Choshu is the uh, polar opposite to what Maeda was doing. Choshu was doing. He was wrestling. Traditional, traditional, traditional pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. He, he, but he revolutionized a lot though within the wrestling frame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Maeda was the one who was going to outside of pro wrestling because you had to to make professional wrestling a legitimate sport. You know what I'm saying? Or being MMA, you know, later on. They were uh, different approaches to being realistic or, or legitimate. Yeah, but decades back, both were in New Japan Dojo. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Mm. Yeah, Maeda, Ricky Choshu, Fujiwara, uh, or uh, Hamaguchi Yatsu, all these people for that matter. The, those, every single one of them worked out at Nogue's New Japan Dojo one time or another. Mm. All the way to today's... Uh, Okada Naito, Tanahashi era, they were all there, you know. But uh, yeah, so uh, I I think Akira Maeda and Riki Choshu were kind of close. Uh, they were friends, and, but uh, they were thinking about two different things, and they mm. t- they had two different plans. They had to go separate way, huh? Two different like uh, visions, you could say. Yeah, yeah, but that's as realistic as you can get in you know in wrestling. You know, because, yeah, we talk about work and finish of pro, pro wrestling, but what they do and how they want to, you know, to move forward as a professional, that's pretty real. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It reflected the, the everyday life more, too, than as opposed to maybe 10 years before that when it was kind of like watching an action hero versus a monster. Now, today's... 2022 wrestling is more of a Game Boy to me. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, definitely at times. I mean, it depends on where you are and and what it is you're watching. But um, 
a lot of it yeah it's just a different rhythm yeah yeah well i'm talking about things that are from 30 years ago now that's right yeah yeah, yeah. and uh this 1989 version of you know booker or kantoku riki choshu more of an establishment but he was veteran then you have three musketeer there already becoming main event G1 Climax as a tool, you know, like a vehicle, the Muto, Hashimoto, Chono, or probably Hase and Kensuke Sasaki for that matter, they were becoming superstar on their own. And Riki Choshu was there to defend the company. I mean, yeah. So it's like the whole circle, you know, of it. Mm. Very interesting. So early, so we can fast forward back to the early 90s now. Because yeah. uh, G1 so, Climax, G1 yeah. Climax, and you talked yeah, about Choshu working, Choshu working with guys like Chono and and uh, Hashimoto. Who when I think oh, of Hashimoto Choshu, and Choshu, Choshu match, oh. I, th- I think those. I mean, maybe they weren't big parts of Choshu's career, but they were huge parts of Hashimoto's career and Chono's of course. Career. So because as much as you know, yeah, it was just like. Uh, Choshu wanting to beat Inoki, you know, back in the 80s, but it was Hashi- now it's Hashimoto and Muto and Chono who had to beat Riki Choshu and Fujinami to get there. Yeah. Completely new new generation of it, yes. It was very, very interesting, yeah. So this, because there's no Inoki there, and Fujinami took, you know, a few years off with bad back. And uh, yeah, that uh, the the whole landscape within New Japan changed. Yeah. So of course, Choshu, you know, hit forties, you know, and uh, yeah, but it was also Tokyo Dome era that uh, in Inoki's days, running ten sumo palace show was a real big deal, right? And you know that the Choshu's era, you'll be running two Tokyo Dome. Fukuoka Dome, Nagoya Dome, that uh, Osaka Dome is like a dome-sized building with you gotta pack 60,000 people, you know, and it will be doing a different thing. And Masa Saito came back to Japan to live full time, and they signed a deal with WCW to be partnership. And now all kinds, you know, WCW people, including people like Ric Flair, start appearing in New Japan ring. Big production. It's nineties. I never think I don't think I ever saw Choshu show up for WCW during that time. He he traveled, yeah, but he never worked the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Masa didn't work the show either. It was time for Liger, the Otani, the you know Tenzan, you know, Tenzan Nakanishi. Yeah, they they wanted to have these guys have experience in 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 uh, American soil and a bigger you know bigger production because WCW was like the major league of professional wrestling. I mean, not as popular as, I mean, WWF until NWO and Monday Night War era, but uh, still considered very big league, right? Mm. Around that time period, you can find that footage. Inoki worked last American match in WCW Clash of Champions, if you remember. A Regal? Yeah. Yeah. Antonio Inoki against William, William Regal. Stephen Regal. Stephen Regal. Lord Stephen yeah. Regal. Yes. Yeah, then Inoki wanted to have him as opponent to have his kind of match. 
Wow, that's a that says that says a lot about Rigo. Yeah, I mean, what kind of opponent would be the perfect opponent for aged Antonio Inoki to yeah. shine? I think, yeah, it's a, that's and a great the stage like Clash of Champions. You could do a little mini version of the Billy Robinson match. Yeah, yeah, right, and wrestling match, which is he also had to showcase something completely different from what WCW TV will provide you every week. I mean, different kinds of wrestling. It had to be. Mm. Inoki was, you know, playing black t- in trunks and black, t- you know, wrestling boots, kimono jacket, and he's like a politician from Japan, and he's a bigger-than-life superstar, having a very special match, Clash of Champions. That uh, He, yeah, he wanted to have uh, Lord Steven Regal for, for his opponent to have his kind of match. That was interesting. But that, that that was another subject for another day. And Ricky Choshu had traveled to America, uh, but he never really worked. Uh, another footage from way back, like a 79, there's a Sakaguchi and Ricky Choshu working WWE Madison Square Garden ring against oh, yeah. Jojo, Jojo Andrews and Bad News Allen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, That's uh, on the WWE Network. That's right. Network, yeah, and then the then play-by-play announcer Vince McMahon, younger Vince McMahon, kept calling him Cho- Koshu, Koshu, Koshu. That's a uh, <laughs> that's what um, a fun fact for Shingo Takagi fans out there. That's wasn't that what uh, his right, right? He name wanted to was? be a Ricky Koshu, yeah, right, because uh, it's Koshu. a old name for Yamanashi Shizuoka area, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, right, right. Wordplay. Shingo Takagi. He wanted to name himself Ricky Koshu, right? I, you but, know, he, I guess he's very much a, a, like a next incarnation in a lot of ways of of Toshu. Pretty much, you see a like lot. A, I see yeah, a lot close of li- close line guy, huh? Mm-hmm. Intense yeah, yeah. jock, mm-hmm. loves to yeah, train, much. Mm-hmm. and longer hair in the back, mm-hmm. kind of a mullet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, he has, still has mullet to this day. Yeah. A wrestling hairdo now. Sure, right? mm-hmm. but um, it, it, but uh, early '90s. After, aside from the G1, he was also still headlining, uh, with New Japan. Yeah, but didn't make him sole top wrestler. Mm-hmm. He wanted to. Yeah, he, his plan initially was five Top Gun, was like a three Musketeer, Muto, Chono, Hashimoto, and Hase and Kensuke. So it's a five Top Gun, mm-hmm. and. Fujinami and Ricky Choshu will remain as more of a senior, senior main event guy. Not necessary, you know, coming at the end of the night, but uh, still very special, like Ric Flair of '90s. Sure. Yeah. Kind of like a special attraction. Yeah. So pretty much because it's the uh, same Ricky Choshu is Ric Flair, same generation, right? Almost. Yeah. yeah it really hit me because Ricky Choshu right now today. You know, 2022, he's 70 years old. Huh. Ricky Choshu being 70, you know? It's a weird thought. He was, I mean, he, the image of him is still running around and doing the clothesline with long hair, right? Mm. But well, the guy's 70. The spirit is the same. And when, whenever he, he comes out onto, you know, television or makes... Oh, he, he is Ric Flair, yes. I mean, I mean, yeah, Ricky Choshu all the way, yeah. Mm. And un- unintentionally funny mm. <laughs> on television. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay, 96 was a special year because that's the year that he won the G1. Yeah, and the last time, right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, we can wrap this up, you know, wrap this episode up because he retires in January 4th, Tokyo Dome. Uh, 1998 actually three months before Inoki's retirement he he decided to you know put his wrestling boots you know once you know he returns 2000 uh, uh, year 2000 so he was he retired really uh, well, I'm sure he meant it you know at the time you know he was going to retire in 1998 but uh, yes he did come back in year 2000 and had 19 more years the actual real retirement was 19 I mean uh 2019 so he worked another 19 years but uh wasn't with new japan it's a good that uh, wrestling's dark age hits and he quits new japan 2003 and there was ill-fated you know short-lived double j world japan pro wrestling and he came back to new japan a little bit but he worked places like hustle and he had, you know, uh, he worked dread, tradition date in a smaller company like a real Japan pro wrestling. And uh, yeah, and then, then, then uh, pretty much started working different companies. And uh, yeah, because he was New Japan was sold uh, to, you know, Ukes and later on Bushiroad. And uh, he wasn't part of New Japan anymore. But the Riki Choshu was Riki Choshu. And he had like a third career, right? And he's still uh, still kind of living it right now. He's in the middle of it, this third career post Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, 1998 on, we'll, we'll talk about that the third uh, portion of uh, Ricky Choshu's legacy hmm. uh, next time. Yeah. And we should talk about the 96 uh, uh, G1. A little. We'll start there, 96. Right when he okay ninety six to two thousand nineteen or to this day to this day I guess because uh, <laughs> yeah. every, every yeah, other day yeah because I said was like he was most influential professional wrestling figure of last thirty years no last forty years mm. Mm. yeah yeah and we got to talk about you know there is that connection from him to Sasaki to stars from today like uh, Katsuhiko Nakajima um, oh yeah there's right. that connection so uh, he still has a. a He's still a, a a relevant figure in Japanese pro wrestling. He just showed up at a, a Tokyo Dome this year for New Japan. Yeah, as a no, guest. yeah, and also he um uh, when he became New Japan Booker for the for the second time, that's when people like Shinsuke Nakamura and Tana, Hiroshi Tanahashi was rookie young lion. So that connection is there too. Oh, he had hands on all the different generation then. And we, we can't forget to mention. Around this time, next week we'll talk about it. But the Onita match, the um, oh yeah, he, yeah. You know, he even or did a second match. incarnation of Riki Choshu Tenru program. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, they did that. Yeah, they did that. Yeah, and 30, 30 40 year program of Fujinami against Choshu, all the way, all the way till like two thousand nineteen. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they were always. <laughs> They never yeah, got kind of like of a yeah. Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes single match, or hmm. Rick, yeah, Steamboat or something like, that. yeah, or the Sheik against Bobo Brazil. See, when I was a kid, I did not understand how could Sheik against Bobo Brazil in Detroit could last thirty years. Now I understand. Mm. Yeah, rivals, rivals are important. Yeah, we'll talk about that next week when. Yeah, uh... rivals are important, and I believe they are good friends because they respect each other mm. so much. Yeah. Okay, so where can listeners find you online? 
um, on Twitter at Fumihikodayo, F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O, Fumihikodayo on Twitter, or find me Fumisaito on Facebook. Message me first. And I'm at Justin M. Nipper, K-N-I-P-P-E-R on Twitter. Uh, next week, we'll do part three. We'll wrap up the third tier of uh, Choshu's career. So until next time, Fumi, take it away. So long from Tokyo. Mm-hmm.